is yet to be known there is no limit as to what God can do so just keep on praying he's listening to you and prayer is just as big as God is prayer is just as strong as God is strong, prayer can reach as far as God can reach. Don't ever give up, just pray, just pray. Don't ever give up, just pray. And prayer is just as big as God is. Just as strong as God is strong. Prayer can reach as far as God can reach. Don't ever give up. Just pray, just pray. Don't ever give up. Just Aren't you glad we have a God that hears and answers prayer? Amen. Amen. <clears throat> It'd be uh, kind of futile if we had a God that just heard it, but praise the Lord, He answers too. Take your Bible, turn over to the book of 2 Peter chapter 1, please. 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to begin reading in verse 1 today. Again, we have a lot to accomplish, so we want to get moving. We want to get plenty of time for our baptism today and make sure that we can enjoy that. 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, we read, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, 
Add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. Again, the church, as we had said and have said over and over again these last few weeks, had been under attack from without. We understand and realize that the Roman emperor and his subjects were in the, not in the least supportive of the church. As a matter of fact, they had declared all-out war on them. The believers that Peter is addressing are those that have encountered severe persecution. They knew what it was to have family and friends come up missing. They understood the hardship and the heartache that came with professing the name of Jesus Christ. And yet through it all, God had delivered them and they weathered the storm. Now Peter writes this second letter, this second epistle, and his concern is not with the attack that is without. Instead, his attack, his, his concern is with the attack that is coming from within. The attack of false teachers and heretics, doubters and faithless men and women who have threatened the well-being of each and every one of the saints. And with the present concern and potential collapse of their faith, Peter outlines a course of action to ensure their faithfulness and their fruitfulness. He provides them with a prescription for success. Peter was determined. I mean determined to help them and to assist them, to equip them with the very tools that they needed to guarantee that they would neither be barren nor unfruitful and that they would never fall. And the secret is a simple three-letter word, the word add. It is this concept that lays the foundation for our church theme. Add to your faith. And in the year 2016, that's indeed what we hope to accomplish, to add to our faith. Why? Because if you and I ever hope to neither be barren nor unfruitful, we must add to our faith. If you and I long to succeed in the Christian life, we must add to our faith. If we never want to fall from the faith, if we never want to lose the favor of our God in our life and in our ministry, in our homes, and our families, we must add to our faith. Peter was basically saying in the first portion of the passage, I've made it clear to you that you're safe on your faith foundation. Your salvation is secure. Your reservation is recorded. However, if you are going to remain fruitful, faithful, and consistent in the Christian life, if you're going to succeed in abiding in Christ, then you must add some things to your faith. Now, we also noted along the way that these characteristics and qualities build upon one another. It was said that each virtue, a fruit of the life of faith, facilitates the next. None is independent of the other. And we said that Christ-like character develops in the same way. That it develops simultaneously, all at once, and yet sequentially. The fact is that none of the traits that we're going to refer to or talk about 
can fully develop until the previous one has been focused on. And to Peter, the Christian life is a simple matter of addition. And he now shares that, he just shares a simple illustration of arithmetic. And he says, if we're going to accomplish what God's called us to do, if we're going to become what God wants us to be, if we're going to remain consistent and faithful throughout, then we must add. Now, we've added a few things along the way these last few weeks. Or at least we spoke about it. We realized and recognized we have this faith foundation. And we said, first of all, we must add to our faith virtue. And we talked about virtue for a period of time. And we said how that basically translates into a desire for Christ-likeness. A willingness to abandon all else and to make Christ himself our priority. We said not only must we add to our faith virtue, but to virtue knowledge. The apostle says that that knowledge is not just general knowledge, but it's very specific knowledge. Knowledge about Jesus Christ himself, the person, the work, and the ways of Christ. As we dig into the word of God, as we study the scriptures, as we meditate upon them, we're learning about him, we're growing in knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so we have this great desire, this very foundational desire to be Christ-like in every aspect of our life, willing to abandon all else, willing to make him a priority then we add to that the knowledge and begin to learn who He is. Because if we don't know who He is, how can we become like Him? Now the apostle steps up to the plate again and says, it's time to add something else now. To your faith foundation virtue, to virtue knowledge. And now we read in 2 Peter 1, 5 and 6, and besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and to knowledge temperance. We're to add knowledge, we're to add to our knowledge, temperance. Now, the root word for temperance is a word that implies self-control. And that means to take hold of or to grip. You know, we might say to someone who's out of control, something like this, we may say, come on, man, get a grip on it. Get a grip. That's exactly the meaning of this particular word. It's that strength of the soul by which a person takes hold of themselves, takes a grip of themselves, that takes full control and full possession of themselves and doesn't allow evil to reign in their life, but instead controls those desires, restrains those desires, taking a grip, taking a hold. And that's the word that we want to address today. And that's the thought that we need to address as we begin to add. Why? Because we don't want to be neither barren nor unfruitful. We don't want to fall. We want to remain steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Always resting and relying upon Him. Always abiding in Christ. And so today, let's discuss and concern ourselves with this particular trait Temperance. Temperance. Yes, you may have a desire to have a relationship with Christ. You may have a longing 
for that intimate fellowship that comes in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Christ that you chose. But may I say this, our heart is not trained to live for someone else. It is not natural to live for someone else. It is natural to live for ourselves. And as we face this idea or this concept of temperance, we need to understand that we need to get a grip on some things. And it's on those desires and those those longings that we have, those passions that we have in our heart, because ultimately if we fail to get get a hold of those things, to take control, to demonstrate self-control, they will consume us. And it will not be Christ's likeness, but it will be the God of this world that we'll look more like. So, Allow me to share a few thoughts concerning temperance or self-control this morning as we seek to add to our faith virtue, to virtue, knowledge, and to knowledge, temperance. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. We ask, Lord, for your leadership and your love in our life. We desperately need you. Lord, we pray for your guidance and direction now, and may your Holy Spirit direct the Word of God to the to the perfect spot in our heart. May He pinpoint our great need as individuals. Lord, help us to have a greater longing and desire to be what You want us to be and a willingness to take the steps needed to get there. Father, we love You and we need You now. Be glorified in what will be said in these next few moments. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Some thoughts concerning temperance or self-control, if you will. First of all, it's not a job for amateurs. It's not a job for amateurs. You say, what do you mean? Well, what I mean is that we're going to need the power of the Spirit of God if we're going to accomplish this goal. We're truly going to exhibit some temperance in our life, some self-control in our life, then we're going to need the power of the Holy Spirit. We're going to need somebody with a little experience, and that's not us, because it's not natural for us. Someone says, well, I know somebody and they're always doing things for others and they're always so benevolent and they're always so kind and they always put others ahead of themselves. That's fine. But let me tell you something. That's not natural. They've obviously had to work at that. Because that's not in your DNA to, to be that way. That's certainly not Adamic in nature. Adam was all about himself. If I recall correctly, in the Garden of Eden, when, Ad, when, when Eve had chosen to uh, eat of that fruit when she was deceived, the Bible tells us, she ate of that fruit. Well, Adam turned around and willfully disobeyed God. you want to know why? Because he was selfish. He wanted her. He was longing for her. He was concerned about her. It was about him. It wasn't about God. It really wasn't about her. It was about him. You know, the most of the motivation that we have in our life is about how it's going to affect me. And the truth is, is that in the Christian life, we, we are to live a self-controlled life, a life of temperance. And we need to add to our knowledge this temperance, because if we don't, then the rest of these characteristics and qualities will never come to fruition. We've got to get a grip on some things. We've got to exhibit some self-control. And you're not going to do that on your own. See, whether it's sanctification or growing in temperance, It's not a do-it-yourself project. It requires cooperation on your part, for sure. But the fact is that you and I, as individuals, as human beings, in and of ourselves, cannot ratchet up the self-control. We can't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We can't get this job done all by ourselves. 
we're going to need the help of someone. And that someone is none other than the Holy Ghost of God. The power of the Holy Spirit of God. I'm sorry, but I can't get this image out of my head. I keep thinking about that John Wayne movie. When they, I mean, they have, they, they, they come in and hurt this particular, shot one of those family members and, and uh, they, the, the family's all upset and they're going to go out and they're going to get these, these guys that shot their family member. And John Wayne turns around to him and says, this isn't a job for amateurs. <laughs> I mean, it's like, I mean, I'm just like, I just can't, you know, John Wayne, you know what I mean? This isn't a job for amateurs, you know? And, you know, what he was saying was is that you guys are inexperienced at this. You're, you're going to go out there and get yourself killed. So John stepped up with a couple of his buddies, and they went and took care of the problem. And guess what? We need the Holy Spirit to step up in our life because we will lose this battle. As we begin to dig into the Word of God, as we begin to, to, to study the, the person of Jesus Christ... You and I are humbled. We can't help but be humbled by our inability to measure up to his standard, to somehow meet the qualifications or the qualities that are necessary in our life. We realize we're never going to be able to obtain this goal. Boy, it's humbling. And all of a sudden it becomes clear to us that we're going to need spirit power, Holy Ghost power, to row against the current of our sinful flesh and heart. Notice, if you would, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. We talk about this word temperance and we, we realize that it's, it's not a job for amateurs. Well, the Bible mentions this word temperance in a list. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's, 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 a, it's a piece of, if you will, so to speak, a part of the whole. Now, there's only one fruit of the Spirit, but they're all part of. There's eight pieces of pie, but they're all one pie. And here we have a, a, a quality called temperance. Notice it's mentioned in the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit, verse 22, Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Notice the word temperance there. Notice where that temperance comes from. Notice the actual fuel that, 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 that will ignite temperance in our life is none other than the Holy Spirit of God. Now, you and I can say no to any wrong desire when the biggest yes in our life is for Christ and His will in our life. See, when a bigger yes is, I want the will of God, I want Christ and the will of God in my life, when that's the bigger yes, then it's not as hard to say no to those desires and those things that take hold of us. We need to realize and recognize that when we do something, it is solely the power of the Holy Spirit. It's God's strength. Yes, we have our part in choosing Him, but it's not just a matter of saying, I'm going to will this to pass. I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to get with the program. No, we need to go to God and say, God, I understand I can't do it myself. I realize that only you can empower me and enable me to get the job done. God, I need you. I can't do it without you. And we recognize His authority and we recognize His power in our life and we yield to Him. 
And then we, yes, with all of our might, follow through with our commitment. But we understand the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit must be the driving force. See, temperance in our life, if we're going to add it to knowledge, it's not a job for amateurs. Number two, it's not a bed of roses. It's not a bed of roses. You know, if... I'm not so sure that many people wash out of the Christian life because they have a misconception of what it's going to cost. You know, we get the idea that you get saved and everything's supposed to be good now. Everything's supposed to fly straight. Everything's supposed to run smooth. There's not supposed to be any more bumps in the road and everything that was wrecked and ruined in our life because of our sinful self is supposed to be restored in whole by the presence of God and the power of God in our life. Well, God, you saved me now. You're supposed to fix me and fix everyone and everything around me. And we, get, we, we almost kind of share that idea, those thoughts with people. If you just get saved, your marriage will get restored. If you just get saved, your children will be submissive. If you just get saved, you'll find that you'll get a better job and you'll be better suited and better capable of providing for your family. That's not true at all. Do you know that you could be lazy before you get saved and you can still be lazy after? Do you realize that you can be as ignorant after you're saved as you were before? Do you realize you can be just as bad a husband, just as bad a wife after you're saved as you were before? Because salvation doesn't necessarily change you unless you let salvation change you unless you let the Holy Spirit of God have control, unless you let Jesus Christ take prominent and priority and first place in your life, unless you allow the Word of God to be driven home deep in your heart and you apply the principles and the truths of God's Word. So many times we get the idea that everything's just supposed to happen. It should just work out good now. Everything's better now, honey. Is it? Well, it can be. But that's still up to you, and you have to allow God to work in your life. Boy, when we are tempted to gratify or to please this, these desires in our heart, these natural desires, and we're, we're willing to, and we're, we're tempted to fulfill these desires in an unscriptural, unbiblical manner, then we have to deny that sinful impulse in our flesh. We have to say no to ourselves. We have to stop the press so to speak, and get a grip and exhibit some self-control, some temperance. And you know what? That's not a bed of roses. That's not easy street. Look, if you will, Luke chapter 9, please. Verse 23 and 24. See, this self-control, this temperance, is what Jesus calls self-denial. Denying self. Luke chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. Jesus is speaking here. And he says, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. Now again, we we look at these verses and we can without a doubt make an application to the lost man or woman and say, you know, you know, uh, 
if you, you try to save your life, you'll lose it. And in and, and the book of Matthew even goes on to say, what shall it profit a man if he gained the whole world and lose his own soul? And, and we can make the application of a lost man, but in reality, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's talking to those that have been following him. He's talking to those that are sitting at his feet. He's talking to people just like you and I. Those that have committed themselves to hearing and listening him to him. And he says to those that are at his feet, he says, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself. Again, Jesus speaks of this temperance or self-control as denying oneself, saying no to oneself. When writing Titus, the Apostle Paul also admonishes us to exercise self-discipline. Look, if you will, at Titus chapter 2, verse 12. Go to the right in your Bible. Titus is a really small book. You might fly right past it if you're not careful. Timothy, first and second Timothy, then Titus. One of the reasons you ought to bring your Bible to church is that it gives you an opportunity to follow the scriptures that the preacher shares them like this, and you get to learn your Bible. You get to learn where their books are in the Bible. It helps you to understand and know your Bible better. I'm not opposed to reading from a tablet or a phone and all that stuff. Your Bible, I understand that. But I'll tell you what, there's something about a book that you hold in your hand and you, you can look at and see. How many of you, and don't raise your hands, but how many of you have ever read your Bibles along the way and next thing you know you're thinking, man, uh, you come across something or you hear something said and you go, man, I know where that verse is. I know where that, it's on the right-hand side of the page. It's, it's, I know it. Oh, man, I can find it. I just know it. And you find it. Uh, you're not going to do that with that tablet. I guarantee you that. So anyway, I'm just saying, I think there's something about opening a Bible, turning to Scripture, getting into the Word of God like that. I think if it's good. Someone says, that's just traditional, that's just old school. Call it what you want, but I, I'm just telling you what my opinion is as we move away from this so rapidly in our culture. <clears throat> oh, let me just say this too, since I'm on it. <laughs> when I hold this up and I tell somebody I'm reading from the Word of God, they know it's, a God, it's God's Word. But when I hold a tablet up, and I say, hold on, let me read this to you from the Bible. They go, Bible, that's a tablet. There's all kinds of stuff in there. Who knows what that says? But I know that this is God's word. I, can, I know that. I'm just saying, sometimes there's a lot of reasons, but those are just a couple. But nonetheless, moving on, because if you do read out of your tablet today, by all means, please turn to this so you can see it for yourself. That's good. It's needed. You need to see it. Titus 2.12. Now notice again. Paul the Apostle is writing to Titus and he's admonishing him and the believers to exercise self-denial, control, temperance. Notice Titus 2.12, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. We, to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. Now, is there anybody in the room that does not war with ungodliness and worldly lust. Because if you say you haven't, you may not be warring with that, but you're definitely a liar. Because there's something else you're warring with that has to do with this flesh. Every one of us are warring with this flesh. Somehow, some way. Let's be honest. 
mean, we're just human beings. None of us are any better than the next. We're just, just the way we're created. We struggle in this flesh. And you know what? When we're trying to exhibit some self-control, when we're trying to deny self, let me tell you, that's no bed of roses. That's a, that's, that's a tough prospect. That's not easy. Denying self is basically the essence of self-control. Saying no to yourself. It's discipline. It's order in your life. Boy, is that important. Sometimes we think about things. And the thoughts that we have aren't necessarily wrong. Maybe there's something we want or somebody we, we desire in the sense of, boy, you know, she's, she's a pretty girl. She'd be a nice girl to, to, to get to know. And, boy, one day maybe the Lord would put us together. And There's nothing wrong with those desires. That's fine. That's natural. It's good. And God's okay with things like that. But then all of a sudden, all of a sudden maybe we're thinking about that or a job or maybe a, a, a materialistic thing like a house or a car or things. And we, before we know it, we're thinking about them and we're thinking so much about them that they have an unusually great amount of, they take a great amount of time and a great amount of focus. Before we know it, they overshadow even our thoughts and our heart toward the Lord. See, we have to get a grip on that. We have to demonstrate some self-control. We have to bring some orderliness to our lives. We can't allow ourselves to just aimlessly think about anything. We must bring ourselves into subjection. We must die to self. We must deny self at times. Yes, we have this great desire to be Christ-like at any cost. Man, we have to settle that first. That's the main one. If we have any other desires, any other ambitions outside of Christ himself, then we're going to struggle anyway. But once we've settled that, then we need to get in the word of God and we need to learn the person and the, 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 the um, you know, we need to learn the ways and the works of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then we must add some self-control, some temperance. The ability to say no, to get a grip on ourselves, to not allow our passions to run rampant and to take control of us. That's not a bed of roses. That's tough business. So we see it's not a job for amateurs. We're going to have to have the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. We're going to have to cry out to God for the ability, the strength, the capability of overcoming these sensual desires and these lusts of the flesh. And we're going to have to say, God, I can't do it without you. But then we got to face it with, in reality. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be a battle. It's going to be a war. And number three, it's simply a way of life. It's a way of life. Temperance has got to be a way of life. It's not something we do periodically. It's not something we do on occasion. It's not what we do when it's convenient it has to be a way of life. Remember we said that it has to do with self-control. It has to do with denying self. It has to do also with bringing order to things. The fact is, is that order is not man's idea. Order is the fingerprint of God upon every one of his works. Everywhere you look, there's order. When you come to our, uh, the series on Wednesday nights, you'll inevitably hear something to, de- the, something to the effect that God is a God of order. I haven't looked over the notes. I don't know exactly what's going to be shared. But without a doubt, you can't look at our world and not see order. 
And where there is chaos and disorder, there is no God at work there. That is all flesh, that is Satan, and that is sin. The life of temperance is a life of order, and it is ordered by God. And if we're going to imitate the Lord Jesus Christ, then we must also value and cultivate order in our own life. You cannot be Christ-like and live a life of disorder. 1 Corinthians 14.33. Turn there, would you please? 1 Corinthians 14.33. Now we're going to get down and dirty. And I'm going to try to help you. We have just a few more minutes and we're trying to make best use of those minutes as we can. 1 Corinthians 14.33. Notice the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 14, 33, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. Notice, if you will, let me find it. That's why we better be able to open it, right? (laughs) Let me find it here. Look at verse 40. Of that same chapter. Let all things be done decently and in what? Order. Now, when we even look at the Old Testament, we consider even the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. We're going to note that they illustrate how order is at the root of God's nature, His moral nature. When you consider those Ten, ten Commandments, we're going to note that four of them teach that. that teach Teach man that God must always be first. He's always first. All of those are statements of order. And then the second six commands, those last six, they, they instruct us how others must be placed above ourselves. So we see that God, even in the Ten Commandments, is expressing order in society, culture, and in morality. The first four, ordering Him to be first putting Him in His proper place. The next six, putting others in their proper place in our life. Because it's so natural to put ourselves there, God says, no, I want you to put others there. So He orders things. Even in the Ten Commandments, He's ordering things. Now, when this order is abandoned, when this order is ignored, when we disregard order, then personal and social chaos are the result. It's always the case. Always the case. God's command, he, he commands us, He orders us. And he has tremendous wisdom. He has understanding. His goal is to protect us and to prosper us. He wants only the best for us. But if we will abandon order in our lives, if we will neglect order in our lives, discipline in our lives, self-control, then we have nothing good to look forward to. Again, we can't become godlike, nor can we develop into the spiritual adults that God wants us to be if we reject order. If we do not get a handle, do not get a grip on this flesh and this atomic nature. If we just simply indulge ourselves in every aspect of life that we please, we will have a mess on our hands. Now, the word order means that something is properly arranged. 
that it's ranked by degree or quality or importance. Now, I want you to consider, if you would, and I don't know how much reading you've done or how much study you've done on great men and women of the past, but and talking about great men and women in the Word of God or great men and women uh, that have served the Lord Jesus Christ over the last two or three centuries. But if you will consider any one of those saints' lives, if you will consider anyone that has truly impacted the church or the world, you're going to see that one of their greatest qualities, probably their most, most glaring quality and characteristic, is that they had a disciplined life. They lived a life of order. Now, this quality is universal. It's a universal characteristic that every single outstanding man or woman has possessed in life. Now, honestly, even if you want to look at the world itself and you want to look at great business leaders, you'll find that they're very organized, that they have order in their life. Because, see, God created things to run properly with order. Our society is becoming more and more disorderly. And why is that? I'll tell you why. Because we've rejected God's rulership in our lives, in our culture, in our society, and we've rejected self-control. We've rejected temperance. The fact is is that we have this pipe dream in America of governing ourselves, of being free to do as we please. That we have this right somehow. To just indulge, engage in anything we choose, at any time, and as much as we want. And you know what? Sadly enough, this is what's bad about it, is that it's crept into the church. And unfortunately, more alarming to me is it's gotten into our homes. Too often we struggle to reach balance in our homes in the area of parenting. We have a hard time with that. Either we're overly permissive or possibly we're even unreasonably strict. We're often at one end or the other with our children. But either way, those are evidences of disorderliness in our homes, which honestly points to disorderliness in mom and dad's life. Maxed out credit cards, obesity, laziness, dysfunctional marriages, a prevalence in sensual language, talk, speech, address, entertainment choices, just outright immorality at times, unfaithful employees, disrespect to authority. All of these things are commonplace today, and they are all part of a spirit of simply self-indulgence. We don't exercise any temperance today as a whole. We really just allow ourselves to just do as we please whenever we want. And this is not going to produce anything positive in your life. Again, our society is becoming more and more disorderly. Unfortunately, it seems that even Christian homes are. Parents perpetuate it. They even promote it. They allow their children to spend hours and hours and hours watching television, playing video games, or surfing on the Internet. They allow them just to 
without any purpose at all, just hang out with friends endlessly and aimlessly. Whether it's online, whether it's on the phone, either way. Whether it's even in person. I mean, we, we're very disrespectful at times. Parents allow their children to be disrespectful in their body language or their words. Allow them to be sloppy in their dress. Careless in their environments. It's all part of the problem. The reality is that those types of parental failures reveal our own disorderliness. Now listen, we, we're to be Christ-like, right? And we all sit here, we come to church, and we say, man, I want to be like Christ, man. I, I want to please the Lord with my life. That's good, and that's important, and I hope you have that desire. But now, you've got to add to that virtue knowledge. You've got to figure out who God is. You've got to figure out who Jesus Christ is. Not just what would He do, but what did He do? And then we need to begin to do that. And as we begin to take on that idea of Christ-likeness, as we begin to learn more about Jesus Christ and who and what He did, we then say, I've got to add something else. I've got to add some temperance, self-control. I can't allow my fleshly desires to run amok. I can't permit myself to just indulge in whatever whim I have. I've got to have some discipline in my life. And I've got to have some... I've got to have some... some Order in my life. Order in my marriage and order in my home. Order in my Christian life. The root problem is really obvious, isn't it? The reason why we struggle with order in our life because most of us don't live for Christ, we live for ourselves. We're not, live whole, we're not living wholeheartedly for Jesus. We're part-time. And may I say that the Lord Jesus and God are orderly. They created this world in an orderly fashion. They ordered this world in an orderly fashion. They ordered the church to be orderly, to behave in a certain way. And they require their children to be orderly. And when we fail to exhibit the quality and characteristic of order, we are not demonstrating or reflecting the person of Christ. We are reflecting the flesh. I want to encourage you to add to knowledge temperance. To get a grip on yourselves. To make up your mind, you're not going to allow yourself just to be pushed and prodded and twisted and turned by the world. To be directed and put in motion by their whim, every whim and every way. But instead, to allow God to order your steps. To allow God to put things in perspective. To realize that your children need to learn to say no to themselves if they're ever going to do that, we as parents must learn to say no to ourselves. Second Peter 1, 5 and 6, And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness. That's what we need to do. Listen.
this morning, you're a child of God, I'm, I'm very, very pleased and happy. Let's go ahead and add some things. Let's take control. Let's exhibit some temperance. Maybe you're lost today and you don't even know for sure heaven's your home. Maybe you're newly saved. Let me tell you this. I want to offer you a tremendous hope today and I want to tell you you've got great hope. I don't care how dysfunctional your family is, your marriage is. I don't care how wrecked and ruined your life has become. I want you to know that this is a book written by a God of order. And he can order your life and he can put things back in place. And he can give you that leadership that you need. And he can give you the priorities that are necessary to make things better in your life. To restore that relationship that's been broken. To fix that relationship with children or something that's been devastated. To, to, to put yourself on a, the high road, if you will. To begin to see change, not only in your life, but in the lives of those around you and in your circumstance and situation. But that change doesn't come just because you're saved. It comes because you put yourself in the hands of the one who saved you. And you begin to follow him and his word first and foremost. You abandon everything you've ever learned and known in your life. And you say, he created me. He knows what's best. That's what we need from believers and that's what we need from those that are just newly saved. We need God to be first in our life. The Lord Jesus. Let's let God do a work. If you're not saved today, why don't you settle it? Why don't you, why don't you just trust Christ today? Why don't you just recognize the fact that you're a sinner by nature? That there's nothing you can do about it. No matter how hard you try to be good, you know down deep. If you don't think the way you ought to sometimes. And you don't always do the thing you know you should. See, by nature... God's screaming to you saying, see, can't you tell you need me? You can't do it yourself. Only I can help change you. Only I can make that difference. Only I can clean you up and make you honorable in my sight. God wants you to be honorable, not just love you. He loves you, but he wants you to be able to praise him and honor him. He wants you to be able to give back that love that he gave you. And he wants to save you and forgive you and take you to heaven one day. Won't you let him do that for you? Won't you let him change you? Father, we need you. We love you, and we just ask for your leadership today. Bless us, Father, in this time of invitation. In just a moment, Lord, we're going to allow the piano to play. We're going to invite folks to come forward and to take care of issues. Lord, there may be those that are coming to make a profession of faith. There may be those that, Father, are coming forward for baptism. That's fine. Lord, we just pray you'd help us to accomplish what you need. Right now, as folks are moving before the piano plays, if you're being baptized and you're welcome to make your way over there. If you're going to make a public profession of faith, you can begin to make your way forward now. Music, why don't we start? Let's all stand to our feet, every head bowed, every eye closed, please.